The early 1960s was a tumultuous time in America. War protests, a fight for racial equality, a generational gap, political assassinations. And in the midst of it all, songwriter Hal David wrote the lyrics, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. But that's as far as Hal got. He got stuck. He drew a blank, a songwriter's block. Nothing else came to his mind, and so he shelved those lyrics for the next two years. One day, Hal was en route to a friend's house. He was meeting with composer Burt Bacharach to work on a few songs. And Hal thought of those unfinished lyrics. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Suddenly, it hit him. The song was a prayer that it should be addressed to God. And so Hal wrote, Lord, we don't need another mountain. And the rest of the song began to flow. When he turned it into a prayer, the song wrote itself. I believe that all of our longings for love should ultimately be addressed to God. He is the source of real love. Forty years after Hal wrote it, it's still true... I think we all would agree that our world still needs the love of God and a love for one another. And that is the subject here in 1 John chapter 3. It begins with a bang. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. The word translated manner is strange. It means from what country? It speaks of a behavior or trait that's indicative of a specific nationality, which reminds me of a great joke. Heaven is where the police are British, the chefs are Italian, the mechanics are German, the lovers are French, and it's organized by the Swiss. Such a world would be heaven indeed. Whereas, <laughs> Hell is where the police are German, the chefs are British, the mechanics are French, the lovers are Swiss, and it's all organized by the Italians. Different countries are known for their own peculiar characteristics, and so is heaven. Heaven is known for what is in short supply on earth, love, sweet love and particularly God's love. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Ephesians 3 verse 18 speaks of the width and the length and the depth and the height of God's love. His love is wide enough to cross borders and break down walls. It's long enough to outlive years and disappointing memories. It dives deep enough to reach the lowest sinner, and it rises high enough to touch God's heart and to atone for all sins over all time. Think of the degree of love it took for the eternal, holy, 
impeccable God to make children out of sinful, rebellious, ornery us. Spiritually speaking, I was a dumpster diver. When I think of where I've been and the scraps I've sucked on and the scum that I've swam in and the depths to which I've sunk, the shameful stuff I've done, yet God in heaven made a way for me to become his child. Those who are in Christ are now children of the King. Behold the mind-blowing love that God has for us that we should be called the children of God. But he continues, Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. God calls us his kids. But this world we live in, it doesn't recognize us as such. And this was how the world treated Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He reflected the Father in all that he did and said. Yet the Jews called him a blasphemer. They didn't recognize God the Son because they didn't know God the Father. And this is true for all God's kids. In Christ, we are co-heirs with Jesus. We're beneficiaries of God's grace and His mercy, members of His forever family. Yet we too are often ignored, often scoffed at. We're not recognized and appreciated for who we really are. Movie star Helen Hunt has been a successful leading lady, movie director. She's won an Oscar for Best Actress. And yet apparently she's not always recognized. Once Helen placed an order at her neighborhood Starbucks, when she went to pick up her drink, fellow actress Jodie Foster's name was written on the side of the cup. Later, Helen tweeted, ordered my drink at Starbucks, asked the barista if she wanted my name. She winked and said, we got you. Hashtag Jodie Foster. <laughs> and just as that barista didn't recognize the movie star, this world doesn't recognize us for who we really are. If you're a Christian, your heart is the site of a miracle. God's Spirit now resides in you. You are now a special place, a sacred place. Yet instead of being treated as special, we're often treated as just a number or another face in the crowd or we're stereotyped or we're racially profiled or we're age profiled. This is happening a lot to me lately. Oh, he's just an old man. He must be grumpy and slow and forgetful. Don't do that to me. I still got plenty of tread left on my tire. Don't let the way people treat you affect how you see yourself. As Christians, don't allow the world to press you into its mold. Rather, live out what God has put in. We all need to remember every day, all the time, who we are in Christ. In Colossians 3, verse 3, Paul writes to the believers and he says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We all need to realize that the Christian life is the hidden life. See, the world looks at the Christian and our devotion makes no sense to them. They scoff. Oh, she's committed herself completely to Christ and she has nothing to show for it. And in a sense, the world is right. Our God is invisible. Our home is over the horizon, out of sight, off the map. Our greatest rewards are still in the future. 
Our Savior is seen, but only through eyes of faith. Our helper, the Holy Spirit, is like the wind. He's spiritual rather than tangible. He's sensed, not seen. Our treasure is buried in our hearts. Our source of joy and love and power and peace is accessed from the inside of our lives. The handles are on the inside. In short, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Yet one day our plight will change. For verse 2 tells us, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. It's hidden. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. One day, God is going to let the cat out of the bag. What we truly are, the glorious children of God, is going to be revealed. And everyone will be in awe of you. When Jesus appears in the clouds, we'll be on cloud nine. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us at the rapture, at the rapture of the church, the day Jesus returns to snatch away his church, Christians will receive new, perfected bodies. Our rotting flesh will be transformed rather than defined by our looks or our physicality. We will radiate God's glory. See, our current bodies are too opaque. All you see of me is like looking at the dust jacket of a book. And we all know you can't judge a book by its cover. My eternal body will be more transparent. When Jesus comes, the glory on the inside of me will be seen from the outside. Today we wonder what these future bodies will look like. Imagine being clothed in a resurrection body. A body no longer vulnerable to pain or to sickness or to soreness or to death. A body that will never break down or grow tired. Can you imagine? We can mull over this body's future characteristics, but John heightens our curiosity with five words. He says, we shall be like him. We'll have the same type of body with similar capabilities as our Lord had after his resurrection. Recall Jesus, he walked with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then as they broke bread together, he suddenly vanished. He reappeared shortly thereafter in the upper room in Jerusalem. Jesus' resurrected body wasn't limited by time and space. I'm not sure what all Christ-like includes, but the one certainty is we'll be the envy of the angels, beautiful beyond description. Today, skeptics label the doctrine of the rapture as a form of escapism. They say rather than changing the world for the better, rapture believers just sit around and sit on their hands and twiddle their thumbs, bide their time, waiting for a future event. But that's not true. Notice in verse 3, John says, The rapture hope is a powerful motivation for godliness today. He says, For everyone who has this hope in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Trust me, a young lady isn't idle 30 minutes before she walks the aisle to marry her groom. To the contrary, she's primping. She's getting ready. She wants to look her best when the moment comes. 
And likewise, the bride of Christ wants to be at our best when Jesus returns. And it's this constant expectation of his arrival that keeps us on our toes. Wherever I go, whatever I do, I need to ask myself first, if Jesus returned at this moment, is this where I'd want him to find me? We want to be pure for sure. Verse 4 tells us, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, I like what G.K. Chesterton once said. He made this comment. He said, the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it has established a rule in order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. I like that. Indeed, God's laws restrict certain behaviors. But God's prohibitions only make room for good things to flourish. Thus, to violate God's order diminishes people and downgrades their quality of life. This holds true for how God has ordered our gender and our sexuality and our marriage. When we think of lawlessness, we imagine looters breaking glass and running out of a store with stolen merchandise. But a more subtle lawlessness teaches folks to ignore God's commands and be who you are or love who you want or follow your own heart. What God tells us to be who God created us to be and to love who God wants us to love and to follow Him. And since we've all been lawless and thought our way was best, verse 5 is good news. He says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Here's a reason Jesus came into our lawless world, to take away our sins. Realize sin can be paid for by proxy. In God's courtroom, someone else can make my bail. Someone else can pay the penalty for my sin. And this was done by our Lord Jesus. The one in whom there was no sin took away my sin and your sin. He says, for whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, (laughs) we need to grasp what this verse doesn't mean first. John is not teaching here sinless perfection. Whoever abides in him does not, mean, does not sin. Does that mean I, I can't sin? I, I'm supposed to be sinless? It's not what John's saying. Remember earlier, chapter 1, verse 8, he's already told us, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all blows it and John knows it. In the original language of the New Testament, which was Greek, The verb here, sins, is in the present tense. So it might be best translated, whoever continues to sin. See, the Greek word for sins here, or harmatia, is to miss the mark. It was used for an archer when he missed the target. And man's problem, hitting that target, is not that he occasionally misses God's glory. It's not that his eye mists up at a time or... He gets distracted or on occasion his hand just slips on the bow. 
No, our problem is that our aim is bad. Our problem is internal. Our human nature has been stained by sin. We're warped and we can't shoot straight if we tried. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus births in us a new nature. He transforms our spirit by the Holy Spirit. He turns us into a straight shooter. Of course, a new nature doesn't mean that I'll never slip up and sin again. But I won't continue in sin. At times, we all sin. But the problem is no longer a warped nature. Evil is no longer internal to my spirit. It's external. It's the pressures of this world or the wiles of the devil or even my fallen flesh that causes me to miss the target. That means the key to living the Christian life is to abide in Christ, to remain in Him, to rely on Him at all times to live His life through me. As believers, there'll be times we'll miss the mark. But it's no longer because we can't aim correctly. Before I came to Christ, I occasionally slipped up and did good. But the flow of my life was towards sin and selfishness. Now that I'm in Christ, at times I slip up in sin. But my prevailing desire is to love God and to please Him. And I hope that's true for you as well. He says in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. It's like father like son. A child of God will act godly, whereas evildoers are the devil's children, for a child will mimic his or her dad. Once my kids and I, we were walking around the house. It was Zach, little Zach, little Zach, they were toddlers. Little Natalie, little Nick, just tots. We turned the corner of the house, and I spit in the yard. It's a habit I got. Just spit in the yard. Then Zach spit. Then Nick spit. And then you guessed it. My darling, sweet, beautiful little daughter spit in the yard. And Kathy saw it. Sadly, Kathy saw it. And she was not very happy with me. What kind of gross habits are you teaching our precious little daughter? But you see, kids mimic their dad. And it's true spiritually. See, if God is your father, you'll habitually do what's right. But if you continually sin or harbor hatred in your heart, Regardless of what you might claim, you're a child of the devil. What John says, says in verse 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And this is the second reason now John gives us that Jesus was manifested or that he came into the world, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to break Satan's chokehold on you and me. To set us free from his influence. In John 10 verse 10, Jesus exposes Satan's goal. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what Satan's up to. He works to rip you off. He's out to kill, 
your joy, your peace, your gratitude. Satan tries to destroy any hope you have for a better life. In contrast, Jesus promises to give us life and life more abundantly. He says in verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. Why does, why does he not sin? Because his seed, God's seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. That is, sin continually, because he has been born of God. Listen to how J.B. Phillips translates verses 8 and 9. He says, The man whose life is habitually sinful is spiritually a son of the devil. For the devil has been a sinner from the beginning. Now the Son of God came to earth with the express purpose of undoing the devil's work. The man who is really God's son does not practice sin, for God's nature is in him for good, and such a heredity is incapable of sin. In other words, righteousness and unrighteousness is in the genes, the spiritual genes, that is. You know, actually, today, every dysfunction, every sinful behavior gets blamed on genetics. From serial killers to homosexuals to alcoholics, folks will claim they were born that way. And in a sense, they're right. For we are all born with a proclivity to sin. See, we can all blame our problems and our sin nature that we inherited from the first man, Adam. Yet we still have a responsibility. We can be born again through Christ Jesus. And he will remove that defiant spirit and replace it with a compliant spirit. One that loves God and one that loves others. He says in verse 10, he says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, from time to time, you read stories of babies who accidentally get switched at the hospital. They get taken home by different families. They go home with the wrong baby. And after some suspicions rise, testing gets done. This all gets discovered. They tested me, but sad to say, mom and dad had to really, he really was born to us. <laughs> They tried. Here John says that many churches make the same mistake. We send people home from the hospital thinking they're a child of God when in reality they're a child of the devil. And the only way to know for certain is a spiritual DNA test. See, if your life stubbornly opposes surrender to God's will, or harbors hatred towards certain types of people. You can get baptized until your fingers prune up, or attend church more than a church mouse, or tithe until you wear out the iPad in the foyer. But if you don't want to do what's right, and you don't want to love others, you're not a child of God. Here's the DNA test for a true child of God. Do I practice righteousness and do I love one another? And the DNA don't lie. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, 
And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Of all the roads that lead to hatred, jealousy is the shortest. And it was jealousy that turned Cain into a murderer. It's been said, a man green with envy is ripe for trouble. The story goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. You remember it. In fact, did you know what that first man and woman were doing after they sinned and got kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Do you know? They were raising Cain. (laughs) Thought you might need a little help there. Cain was their first son. The second son was Abel. You remember, Abel realized that his lawlessness and that his sin required a sacrifice, that God seeks justice too. And since the wages of sin is death, Abel brought a sacrifice to God's altar. But Cain was a proud man. He brought God his crops, the work of his hands, a horn of plenty. Rather than offer God what God wanted, Cain offered what was convenient for him. God rejected Cain and accepted Abel. And of course, this sent Cain off in a rage. He was angry. Cain didn't get what he wanted. And he took out his frustrations on Abel by attacking and killing his brother. Understand, men of God like Abel are easy targets for people mad at God like Cain. As they say, a man's arms are too short to box with God. So that man will often take out his anger and failure and frustrations and envy on God's representatives. And this is why John tells them, his readers, not to be surprised by persecution. He writes in verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Neither should we be shocked if you and I are hated for Jesus' sake. Verse 14, For we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. How do you know you've been made new in Christ? How do you know you've passed from death to life? Love is the evidence of spiritual life. It's how you check for a spiritual pulse. Not blood, but is love pumping through your heart. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now obviously murder carries more serious consequences than mere anger. Yet the deed comes from the seed. It's the same evil, just in different degrees. Murder is uninhibited anger. Anger may may never pull, actually pull the trigger. But folks can pull the trigger in their heart, can't they? He says in verse 16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here's what I call cross-think. Do you cross-think? I hope you do. And here's how it works. If Jesus went to the cross for me, then I can toss the ball around with the kids even though I come home exhausted from work. 
if Jesus went to the cross for me, I can cook that pan of lasagna and take it to a needy family in the church. If Jesus went to the cross for me, then I can sacrifice a little spending money to help a person who's lost their job. If Jesus went to the cross for me, then I can spend time with a teenager that nobody cares about. Or if Jesus went to the cross for me, then I can help my wife vacuum the... Yeah, I can do that too. You see what I'm saying? This is cross-think. John 3.16 tells us that God loves us so much that He gave His only begotten Son. Now, notice this. 1 John 3.16 tells us how we ought to love one another by laying down our lives like Jesus did. Verse 17 tells us, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? God's love doesn't close its eyes, doesn't shut its heart, and it doesn't sit on its hands. Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Notice here in verse 17, three traits of God's love. It sees needs, it feels needs, and it meets needs. And this is how love should show up in us. First, love sees needs. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need. One Sunday, years ago now, a little note was dropped in our offering box. There was no name on it. This isn't the actual note. But this is what it said. Pray for me. I desperately want to end my life. I'm so unhappy. Thank you. I didn't see that note until everyone had left that morning. But it has always grieved me to think that I may have passed that person in this room that morning and overlooked them when they were in such a desperate place. It's scary that we can be oblivious to desperate needs that we don't see. See, it's love that opens our eyes and helps us to see the needs. Love sees needs, but it also feels needs. Verse 17, For whoever has this world's goods and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Implied is that God's love prohibits a shut heart. As long as the love of God abides in me, it keeps prying my heart open. I'll stay empathetic to people's needs. I may not always be able to meet someone's need. And at times, for reasons unknown to me, God may even lead me not to meet their certain needs. But He never wants me to shut up my heart to that need. When I turn a cold shoulder or stonewall a legitimate need, if I ever stop caring for the person that's hurting, I'll stop feeling altogether. And I'll end up among the thrones of throngs of folks who go through life cold and embittered and lonely. I don't want to end up a lonely old man. I'm not an old man anyway. As I already pointed out. Love sees needs. Love feels needs. And love meets needs. 
See, God's love has a get-her-done mentality. It doesn't just talk a good talk. As we're told in verse 18, it's not just love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. God's love rolls up its shirt sleeves. It doesn't just do what's convenient. It helps where it actually hurts. Stanley Munaham once wrote, Love talked about is easily turned aside, but love demonstrated is irresistible. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. But not in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. And then verse 19, And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before Him. In short, love breeds confidence in my relationship with God. I know I am a true child of God, not because I pray three hours a day or never miss church or always give my offering or teach a Sunday school class or even speak with tongues. No, I know that I know God because His love fills my heart and is revealed in my actions. Jesus said to His disciples, John 13, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is true, love is the believer's birthmark. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. See, if you know there's hatred in your heart, then God knows it too. You can't fool God. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. You know, it's been said, your conscience is like a baby. It has to go to sleep before you can. If you know there's a twinge of hatred or prejudice in your heart towards others, it's time to repent before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. A heart that's free from hatred, that lives according to God's law, is a heart that's in harmony with God. And from that heart will flow prayers that will very likely get answered. It says in verse 23, and this is his commandment. You want to keep his commandments? Here they are. That we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. You know, it's the human tendency to complicate things. We complicate everything. Just try to work on your car. It's been said, America has 35 million laws trying to enforce 10 commandments. But God keeps his commandments simple. They just two. Believe in Jesus and love one another. Well, now chapter 3 ends with a reminder of the Holy Spirit, our connection to God. Whereas chapter 4 begins with the acknowledgement of other spirits in the world. He says, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. See, along with love, another source of assurance for the believer is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. No one becomes a child of God without the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who births within us God's nature. Yet here's the problem we have in the spiritual realm. 
Love is demonstrated objectively. We love in deed and in truth. Yet the leading of the Holy Spirit is very subjective, is it not? Our human spirit is like a satellite dish. It picks up all kinds of signals from all kinds of sources. God speaks to me. But the devil can plant thoughts in my mind. The world can send me messages. Emotions, my own emotions can influence me. My own conscience and subconscience are active. The late night pizza I ate last night can cause disturbing impressions. I mean, this is why John cautions us to test the spirits, whether they are of God. And in these next few verses, John tells us how to run a spiritual identification check. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Here's how you know it's the Holy Spirit. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Simple enough. To peel back the spiritual facade of any impression, discover what it says about Jesus. Discover what it says about Jesus. A spirit or or an inner influence that isn't correct about in honoring of Jesus and what Jesus taught is evil and must be rejected. If it doesn't exalt Jesus, it's not of God. So let's say your boyfriend tells you that he's been praying and he believes God has told him that the two of you need to have sex tonight. You need to test the spirits. And how would you do that? What does Jesus teach? What does Jesus say? Would he agree? The obvious answer is no. Now, in particular, John was dealing with a deception here that had been introduced to his readers. In his day, the truth was under attack from a heresy known as Gnosticism. These false teachers denied that God had come in human form. They believed that matter was intrinsically evil. Thus, God would never take on a physical body. Of course, they couldn't deny that Jesus had actually walked the earth. Jesus of Nazareth was a fact of history. There were too many eyewitnesses who saw him firsthand. Thus, the Gnostics tried to skirt the obvious. They made wild claims that Jesus had appeared but not in flesh and bone. He was a phantom. And they concocted tales of Jesus walking on the beach without leaving any footprints. He was just a ghost. Other Gnostics believed that the Spirit of God rested on the man Jesus until just before his crucifixion, at which point the divine Spirit departed from the human Jesus. See, they couldn't bear the thought of God actually being crucified. In various ways, Gnosticism rejected the biblical truth that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And thus John writes, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Now in John's day, the heretics denied Jesus' humanity. It's interesting that today the heresies concerning Jesus have largely flipped. Today, they deny his deity. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other cults affirm Jesus' humanity, but they deny his godhood. 
He was an angel, they'll say. Or just a God with a little g, a little an a God, less than the God. Yet John's teaching applies to both denials. If you're not right on about Jesus, then you're all wrong about God. And then he says in verse 3, And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Revelation 13 speaks of a global leader who will lead a last day's revolt against God. He is the Antichrist. But his spirit has been in the world ever since John's day. Even today, there is a strong spirit of Antichrist in our world. Transgenderism and gay marriage are blatant attacks on Christ's order. They're Antichrist. The anti-Semiticism we've seen recently is anti-God and anti-Christ. In addition, you can't watch a movie today or a cable TV show without hearing the precious name of Jesus taken in vain over and over. Why is that? We live in an anti-Christ world. Today's society advocates free speech for every ideology except those who speak for Jesus. The evil Antichrist is yet to appear, but his spirit is already at work. And yet we need to remember verse 4. For you are of God, little children. That's about where we started. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yeah. As Christians, we face an evil trifecta. The world, the flesh, the devil. The world wants to beat us up. The devil attempts to rip us off. The flesh tries to drag us down. Needless to say, the Christian life is not a sheltered life. Christians undergo hardships. But in all we undergo, God promises to help us overcome. And here's how. Read again verse 4. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Remember this. One plus God equals a majority. One plus God equals a majority. At times it may, be, it may appear as if the world is stacked against you. Our opponent's hand is loaded with aces and kings. Just remember, you got the trump card. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. When you need strength, recall the God that hung the heavens lives in you. Need wisdom? Keep in mind that the mind of God that knows all mysteries abides in you. Need calm and composure? Hey, the God who commanded the sea rides in your boat. And when you need love, don't forget the love that sacrificed itself on the tree now lives in your heart. Let me suggest we all put this verse to memory. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Then he says in verse 5, They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Our ears hear what we've, what we've tuned them to hear. Let God train your ear and you'll hear from God. But tune your ear to this world and you'll be deaf to the voice of God through His people. 
And note verse 6, when the Apostle John says, we are of God, the we he refers to is himself and the other apostles. And then he says, he who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. In other words, he's claiming for himself and his fellow apostles a special authority. John is affirming here the position that the first 12 apostles occupied in God's plan. In Ephesians 2 verse 20, Paul says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. And thus those led by God's Spirit will pay attention to the apostles, men authorized to speak on God's behalf. This is how the church has always designated divine scripture and has judged truth from error. Was it written by an apostle or was it written under the authority of an apostle? If so, that passes the litmus test for inspiration and is part of the criteria that we've compiled for the biblical canon. So this is how we know books are scriptural and should be in your Bible. It's were they written by an apostle or under the apostle's authority? John explained that to us here in verse 5 and 6. In closing, let's not love in word only. Let's love in deed and in truth. For love sees needs, and it feels needs, and it meets needs. For what the world needs now is love, sweet love.